The reading this morning is taken from Luke, uh, chapter 23, verses 32 to 43, and the Bible, uh, church Bible, page number is 1060. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for what we are, get, uh, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. What does, uh, what does paradise mean to you? I guess, uh, talking of sun, in most people's minds, it's uh, sun-drenched, deserted islands fringed by palm trees with clear blue skies and sea. Certainly that's what the manufacturers of bounty were to have you believe, adding some uh, good-looking, scantily clad young men and women and the strapline they came in search of paradise and found it in Bounty. Well, it might not have convinced you to buy Bounty bars, and if it did, you've probably moved on to Yorkies by now, or uh, <laughs> if you're posh, green and blacks. The thing is, that by choosing a tropical island, the commercial makers use something that people could relate to, because you know, even people watching had only ever been to Skegness on holiday, they could still see that that was a big improvement on what they'd experienced. Because even the best things in this life don't provide lasting satisfaction. They're an illusion of paradise. And if you've ever seen the film The Beach, which really is a sort of modern-day version of Lord of the Flies, it makes that point quite clearly. There's a group of young people going in search of an island where there's the most perfect beach you can find. But the paradise is an illusion because fallen human beings living together in a commune as they were there inevitably ends up in tragedy. When the passage we're looking at this morning from Luke, Jesus says to one of the criminals hanging there with him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. What does he mean by that exactly? Where do people think they will go after they die? And I'm sure if we're honest, we will all have asked ourselves that question at some point. Maybe when you've experienced the death of others. Maybe when you've been confronted by death yourself. One thing we can all agree on is that one day we will all die. 
But what happens next? In a poll taken last year, despite the, uh, the poor church attendance in this country, apparently 53% still believe that there is life after death, and 55% believe in heaven. Over the rest, about 21% think they'll be reincarnated, and I guess the rest think they will simply cease to exist. But an interesting question to have asked those who believe in heaven would have been, do you think you're going there? Because the tragic thing is that most people who do believe in heaven believe that they will be going there, but spend very little of their whole lives on this earth thinking about God and the life to come. As I said earlier, we started a sermon series on the sayings of the cross as we run up to Easter. And last week we looked at those incredible words of an innocent man who had preached about loving your enemies. And when it came to it, he practiced what he preached as he uttered those words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That wasn't an an absolute pardon that, that lets everybody off the hook, but it was an offer of forgiveness for all who would take it. And the problem is that Most people don't take it, as we will see in this passage this morning. Because the fascinating thing about this passage is that there are various groups of people who are in the presence of God. They're in the presence of the one who will determine where they will end up, and yet they respond to him in very different ways. And their responses are very typical of the responses of people towards Jesus today. Have a look down at the passage. You've got it open on 1060. There are the hostile reactions The rulers, it says in verse 35, who sneered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. There are soldiers who mocked him. Verse 36. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals who hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And then there was also the crowd, it says in verse 35. The people who stood watching. Who stood on the fence. What those who mocked, what those who just looked on had in common was they didn't really believe that this man could either save himself or anybody else. In spite of all the miracles they'd seen, the teaching they had heard, despite the fact that no charge could be found against him by either Herod or Pilate, despite the fact that he called on his Father in heaven to forgive them, they still couldn't accept that this was the Son of God. And then there was the criminal to whom Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And the question is, why did Jesus make this promise to this one man? Why did he do that? What is it that this man did that made it possible for Jesus to say those words to him? And as we look at that, what is the response that we need to make to Jesus for him to say the same to us? Well, the first point is that he believed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. What he said there to the other criminal in verse 40 was, Don't you fear God? This man here is God. You are hurling insults at God himself. Now, what gives you the right to insult him as if he he were your servant and should do your begging and come and save your miserable life? And the thing that seems to make it hard for this other criminal and these people gathered here are mocking to accept that he was the Son of God was that he didn't appear 
to be able to either save their lives or his own life. And they're probably thinking, what God would allow himself to be crucified? Surely that was the ultimate demonstration of impotence. But of course, what they are ignoring is that this was always part of God's plan. Let's have a look back at some Old Testament prophecies that prophesy this occurrence with great accuracy. If you turn back to Psalm 22, on page 554, it's a psalm of David, and as with many psalms and prophecies, they, uh, they're seen in the immediate context, but also looking forward to the future, to the Messiah. Psalm 22, look what it says there in verse 7. All who see me mock me, They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Look on to verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But of course, it's not only the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus himself said that this would happen to him. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he said to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be portrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. What he was doing there on the cross, and we'll look at this further in this sermon series, was taking on himself the punishment that was due for the sins of mankind. If he hadn't died then, we would have had to. And as our lives come to an end, that really would be the end. There would be no nothing else. There would be no paradise, no, no nothing. But because he laid down his life for us, then, and after three days rose again, he brought us freedom from death. He ensured that our eternal destiny would be secure. He gave us hope. And that eternal destiny depends not on how often we come to church, how many good deeds we have done, but it depends on how we respond to Jesus. And that is the question that each one of us needs to ask ourselves. Who was Jesus? Because we can come up with all sorts of objections to the Christian faith. We can start going off about uh, you know, churches and hypocritical Christians and religious wars and everything else. But ultimately, you have to decide who was Jesus. Was he the Son of God? Or was he just a deluded or wicked man? And that is a decision you need to take for yourself, as the criminal did who hung on the cross. Despite all the insults, the mocking, the the humiliation that was going on around him, he didn't allow that to influence him. He still was able to say to the other criminal, don't you fear God. This man has done nothing wrong. And we may find ourselves in specific situations where people are openly critical of Christianity. But I think most of you will probably find that it's not the direct confrontation that you often experience, but it's just living in a society, in a workplace, where there's a constant background noise of putting Christianity and Christians down. There'll be the whole Darwinism thing going on in schools, on the TV. There'll be the highlighting of Christian leaders in the the media who've fallen. 
There'll be the ridiculing of, of the church. The, the Church of England is split apart. There'll be this, the sight of churches being sold and turned into nightclubs. There'll be the mocking of Christian moral values. And with all that going on, it requires great strength of character. It requires, ultimately, the Holy Spirit in us to say, don't you fear God? Because I do. And if you are a Christian already and you get into a conversation about Christianity, can I say that don't allow yourself to be trapped into one of these these dead-end conversations about denominations or gays or women priests or whatever. Ask your friend, who do you think Jesus was? Because that's the answer he'll have to give himself on the day of judgment. The first thing the criminal did here was to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And the second thing we see here is that he acknowledged his guilt as he hangs there next to the Son of God. He sees the innocence of Jesus. He sees his holiness. And he's confronted with his own guilt. Look at verse 41. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And that is what happens when you meet Jesus. Unless you have seen your own sin, then you haven't truly met Jesus. To acknowledge when we've done something wrong is, of course, one of the the hardest things to do as as a human being. Chemical Ali, who earned his nickname following the weapons he used to cause the death of thousands of Iraqi Kurds, was found guilty of genocide and crimes against humanity. He was executed in Iraq last month. Throughout all the court proceedings, he refused to admit that he'd done anything wrong. But of course, it's not just mass murderers who refuse to admit their guilt. We all find it difficult, even in the smallest of things, don't we? Where did this this desperation to, to cling on to our innocence or find an excuse come from? Well, it started back there in the Garden of Eden. When God accused Adam of listening to the woman and eating the fruit... And Adam blamed Eve. And Eve blamed God for putting her with him. And Eve blamed the serpent. And in some ways, yes, that was an excuse. You know, if Eve had not been there, then maybe Adam wouldn't have been tempted. If the serpent hadn't been there, maybe Eve wouldn't have been tempted. But the fact is they still had a choice to do right or to do wrong. And when they made the wrong choice, they tried to defend their actions. Now, there could have been a host of reasons why these criminals on the cross had committed the crimes they they did. Maybe somebody had done something awful to them and they decided they had to get their their own back. They needed revenge. Maybe they were just desperately poor and resorted to desperate measures to stay alive. Many of you will know the story of Chuck Colson, Nixon's right-hand man in the Watergate scandal. In his book, Born Again, he tells of the moment when he realised his own guilt. He'd been assured by his lawyer that he would get off the charges laid against him if he pleaded innocence. But he was given a talk at a prayer meeting and a breakfast. And at the end of the talk he writes this. He says, I discovered that when I asked the Holy Spirit of, to, uh, the Spirit of God to speak through me, the pressure leaves, he takes over. <laughs> and this morning the words came out more boldly than ever before. Toward the end of my 30-minute talk, I thought I owed some explanation for my indictments. 
that it was important for them to know the truth so they could better accept my testimony. I know in my own heart I explained that I'm innocent of many of the charges. The flow of words stopped as my mind took in what I'd said. Many of the charges, but not all. There was an awkward silence. I looked down at the notes before me, but they were no help. I had hardly glanced at my prepared text during the whole talk. The pause must have been as embarrassing to the audience as it was to me. A hot flush spread over my face. The press is here, I thought to myself. Better recover fast. Uh, Innocent of all the charges I stand accused of, I stammered. I continued, but the life was gone from my words. No one else seemed to have noticed my slip. There was nothing about it in the press. But the words, many of the charges throbbed with the pulse of the jet engines flying me back to Washington. Was it a Freudian slip or was it God using my voice? Many, but not all the charges, Chuck. My own words had clinched it. My conversion would remain incomplete so long as I was a criminal defendant tangled in the Watergate quagmire. I had to put the past behind me completely. And if it meant going to prison, so be it. What is the guilt that we are expected to confess after all we would all have done different things wrong? But ultimately what we all have in common is doing things our way instead of God's way. And unless we acknowledge that, then we will never be able to be made right with God. If we cling on to the fact that we're, we're not as bad as some people, that comparatively speaking, we're, we're actually quite good we will never really understand the need for Jesus' death. I'd heard the gospel message many times as a child. I professed faith as a teenager. I was baptised. Went off to university and uh, argued with my friends about the existence of God. But it wasn't really until the age of 26 when my faith really became alive. Because it was at that moment I looked at my life, I looked at just how selfish I had been, just how riddled my life was with sin, and said to Jesus, now I know why you had to die for me. Now I get it. Acknowledging our guilt means saying, as the criminal did on the cross, I deserve this. And whatever mitigating circumstances there may be in my favour, I still deserve to be punished for all the selfish, proud stuff I've done in my life. The other criminal hung there was not prepared to admit that he deserved his punishment. All he could think about was how he might save his skin. It never entered his mind that he should say sorry and to change. And that is the way most people sadly treat God. They they blame him when things go bad. They expect him to get out of difficult situations. But they fail to see where they've gone wrong. And of course, even if we are Christians here already, we may be tempted to do do the same, to say to God when times are tough, I don't deserve this God. The criminal, having acknowledged his guilt and the punishment that he deserved, went on to ask Jesus to save him. Verse 42, look down there. His request is, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This whole perspective now has changed. He now has an eternal perspective. He's, he knows he's going to die. He knows he deserves to die. But what, what next? He knows that he needs to deal with the consequences of his sin in this life. 
and that Jesus is the only one who can help him. He knows that he's a king. He knows that he will reign over a kingdom and, and he wants to be part of that kingdom. And so these words, these very few words that he says, we might not include all the words that we, we suggest people say when they, they come to faith. But in that remember me is a plea for mercy. He's confessed his guilt and now he's saying, forgive me, Lord. If you are someone here who is already a believer, you will know that you owe your faith to God's grace at work within you. You know, you would probably have read Ephesians, you've probably read Romans, you, you've seen it, it's quite clear, but here is a vivid example that we owe that all to God's grace. Because look, look at this criminal, he's somebody who's nailed to a cross, he cannot physically move. He's about to die. He can't pay back what Jesus is about to do for him. And yet, He has done all that he needs to do. He has confessed his sin. He's repented. And he's trusted in Christ for his forgiveness. I'm sure had he not been in that position, he would have gone out and used his his money, his time and his gifts to serve the Lord in whatever way he could. But this example reminds us that it's not that Christian service that earns our right to salvation. It's simply a response, that is, to what Jesus has already done for us. When it comes to it, even on their deathbeds, people can acknowledge their guilt and ask for forgiveness. Well, we've looked at um, what it was that made Jesus able to say to this uh, penitent criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God, he acknowledged his guilt and he asked Jesus to save him. The final question is, why would we want to follow that example? And there's much we could say about what it means to experience freedom from guilt, the joy of knowing God's love, being part of his family. The answer the criminal receives is quite simple though. It says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What is this paradise? Well, we get an idea of it if you turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Verse 3. Page 1165. 2 Corinthians 12, verse actually 2, starting verse 2. This is Paul speaking. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Paradise is is heaven where there are things prepared by God for those who love him, things that are indescribable. And sometimes we can have, I'm sure we've all known one of those incredible experiences which you you just want to to tell somebody else about, and yet you can't find the words to convey the full impact of what you experience for yourself. Interesting, seeing children try and grapple with that. They experience something for the first time, they try and tell somebody, they just can't find those words. 
This paradise that we are looking forward to is beyond our human imagination because it's where God is. And how can you describe what it's like to be in the presence of God? John tries to do that in the book of Revelation following the the vision that he receives. It's in this book where Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And if you just want to turn with me to the end of Revelation, right to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. It talks about the heavenly city of God where the tree of life is, which is the paradise of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer... Will there be any curse? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Key thing about this paradise is that God will be there with us. Jesus says to the criminal, not just you'll be in paradise, but you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with the one you want to be with. The question I want to leave you with this morning is do you want to be with Jesus in paradise? If you do, then all you need to do is accept that he is God. To acknowledge your sin, to trust that he's the one who can save you from the eternal consequences of that sin. And if you've already done that, if you know you're going to a better place one day, But ask yourself, have you become too attached to this world? Are you living your life as though this is all there is? Keep your heart and your mind set on things above, on the true paradise that awaits us.